Off the top, we talked to the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. And there's no shortage of topics this week. BC Liberal leadership full of controversy in its last week. ICBC's dumpster fire and pipeline politics between the two NDP parties, Alberta and BC. Later in the show, we discuss housing with Pork Equipment Mayor, Metro Vancouver Chair Greg Moore. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics for Kamloops Computer Center. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. A snowy, wintry morning here in Kamloops. Always a pleasure to be joined on the phone uh, this morning by Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning. How's Victoria? Snowy, cold, rainy? What's it's the deal? Great and our friend Keith Baldry is fighting the cold. Yeah. Got to go live on Global TV on Saturday night to cover the Liberal leadership race. <laughs> ah, uh, yes, the Liberal leadership race. Uh, how fast did that thing go out of control? It was a yawn fest for like five months, and suddenly uh, accusations flying around the room, uh, things whispered into reporters' ears, all sorts of craziness. Vaughn, what is going on here? Well, they're not handling themselves with very much dignity. There's a lot of recriminations. Uh, some of those are around what cost them their majority last spring. That's still a very sore spot with liberals. But you're also seeing uh, the various camps accusing each other of underhanded tactics. It's, you know, I think the public looking on to this is going to be saying, how are you guys going to unite when this thing is over tomorrow night? At You know, before 7 o'clock tomorrow night, we're going to know who the new winner is. That person is got a big job just patching things up among all these uh, all these rivals so accusations of some kind of of meddling with new membership signups uh allegations that seem to be centered against the todd stone campaign all sorts of whispering going on uh, rob to you i mean we see smoke is there fire it's tough to tell because the party has not provided a lot of details on yeah. any of this. You know, we've all asked the Liberal Party for some explanation of, you know, our memberships disqualified. Do they involve Todd Stone? Uh, there was this letter that four campaigns signed asking the party to go public with these allegations to ensure transparency and confidence in the vote. And the party basically said, had a very craftily worded response, which mm. was along the lines of, well, significant numbers of memberships were rejected from all candidates which is a little bit like the don't throw you know, bricks if you're in a glass house kind of response, uh, warning to the rest of the camps on how far they want to push this. But it, you know, um, it's interesting to see the reaction to it because when you talk to Todd Stone, he says, oh, yeah, I mean, look, people are coming to me in droves. They didn't like the fact that everyone's ganging up on me. They think that I must be the front runner and I'm picking up a bunch of support. And even the parties begrudgingly admit um, the other candidates that um, he managed to to turn that around and make it a positive somehow for him in the last day. He's, he's out there saying this race is going to come down to Diane Watts and Todd Stone, according to his data. Mm -hmm. So no shortage of hubris from the Stone campaign, that's for sure. But it's it's got really messy in the final days. Yeah, well, let's take a quick listen. This is Stephen Carter and Todd Stone. Carter, for those who don't know, is the campaign strategist for the Mike DeYoung camp. Uh, just a quick snippet of both back-to-back. When the party released the number of memberships that they had sold, it was 63,000. Now it's 59,000. Now, I'm not a wizard at math, but 63,000 minus 59,000 is 4,000 memberships that went poof in the air. My number was 80. I know that Wilkinson's number was 120. I know that Sam Sullivan had like 10 disqualified. Where'd the rest go? Even Mike Lee had very, very few. The remaining 3,000 memberships are Stone and Watts. How many rejected memberships does your campaign have? I'm not going to get into a specific numbers, but the party 
party has put out a statement. The party has said that uh, all of the campaigns have had uh, about the same number of, of uh, rejected ballots. I have no idea uh, how many each campaign has had. Um, we had some, and, and they were ballots that were rejected by the party uh, due to uh, a lack of information, uh, missing information on, on the forms. Fair enough. The party's doing its work. I find it, again, really regrettable that campaigns would, uh, would, would stoop to the level of questioning the integrity of, of, uh, of someone who has worked 30 years to build this party. So it strikes me, gentlemen, we have candidates and more than a few of them are talking about uh, a change, uh, freshness in the party, renewal, uh, transparency. Uh, and yet the B.C. Liberal Party in, in, in this membership controversy is, is anything but those things. Should they come clean with the numbers, Vaughn? Well, let me jump in, I jump in there for a second. Yeah, sorry, Rob, go ahead. That, that, that comment from Todd Stone there is not true. Um, the party did not say that all campaigns had yeah. equal number of membership. And I, that, I quoted him saying that in a story online yesterday, and it prompted this furious backlash from the other campaigns. The party did not say that. The party said that all campaigns had memberships rejected, and there was a significant number overall. It did not say they were all the same. So that is the kind of comment that Stone is making that's really kicking people off. They're, they're accusing him of lying or misleading uh, the public by saying stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, back to you, Vaughn. Should the party come clean on this? Well, yes, the party should come clean on this, but they didn't do that last time. So the last leadership race in the, in the Liberal Party, 2013, there were allegations of Christy Clark campaign gaming the system and giving herself an advantage, and those allegations have been around since then. The party did nothing, admitted nothing at the time, but now... When they brought in the rules for this campaign, they said, oh, we've tightened up the procedures to avoid abuses, which tacitly admitted they had a problem in 2013 and they thought they fixed it. Well, the allegation against the Stone camp right now, and I don't know the truth of it, it's on the eve of the vote, but the allegation of the Stone campaign is that they figured out some way to game the membership. They figured out some way to get to smuggle bulk memberships in, that they were caught, and a lot of those were disallowed. There's still an issue there, and I think that's what's driving this. Plus, as Rob says, Stone has not come clean on this. He said, he said to you, I don't want to get into how many members we had disallowed. Well, the rival camps say that most of the disallowed members were Todd Stone, and the number was high enough that it suggests it wasn't accidental. There was something deliberate going on there. That's a fairly serious allegation against a guy who may well be one of the two names on the final ballot on, on Saturday night. Yeah, and I think context is important because we let's assume that, that Stephen Carter has his numbers correctly. Uh, Andrew Wilkinson, for example, he says lost 120, or 120 memberships. Well, if, if Wilkinson only signed up 200 people, well, that's a different context. If he signed up 8,000, a different context again and we lack that context right now rob yeah well i think that you know the, the purpose of gaming the system uh is that you theoretically as a campaign could make sure that you can vote on someone's behalf or eliminate the real headache in campaigning which is ensuring that you get out your vote that's the that's what everyone's doing right now is they're frantically phoning all their members saying make sure you get your pin make sure you register with a party Yes, it can take up to 90 minutes. I know it's a pain, but, you know, we signed you up and we really need you to get out to vote. That's, and if you can game the system in some way where in the, last, in the 2011 campaign, 
it was bulk pin voting. So you gather all the pins on behalf of members, and then you sit down and have a pin party in whatever mm-hmm. campaign you're in, and you vote for them, and you ensure that they get out, and you don't have to work to get them out. And that was outlawed by the Liberals, and that seems to be where everyone's heading on these allegations now, is that if you control people's memberships and you control their pin, you eliminate the hard work of making sure they get out to vote. And the party should be saying something about that because that's exactly what happened last time. And if it's happening again, um, that's a that's going to really tick uh, a lot of members off. Yeah, I agree. Uh, tangentially, uh, we talked about it just to say it was brought up at least so far, but uh, Stone says he's 1-2 with Watts. Uh, the Lee campaign has come out in response to you, Rob. Mark Marison saying it's Lee Watts. Uh, the DeYoung camp tells me they have DeYoung Watts, but everybody has Watts in front. So uh, that's interesting, and it brings up the uh, the concern that if she has enough of a lead between one and two off the first ballot, might be pretty hard to reel her back in. Yeah, I think that's well, a possibility. Uh, you're quite right. They, uh, the, the only real consensus about this vote tomorrow night is that nobody's going to win on the first count. Watts is likely ahead. Sullivan is likely last. Uh, The issue that raises is, obviously, the win will be decided by the second count, where they count second choices. Maybe by a third count, where they count second choices. But So here's the the big unknown. Uh, It's likely that the three former cabinet ministers, that their second choices will be each other of their supporters. Uh, liberals who've been members for a long time uh, don't know the outsider Lee, Don't the newcomer Lee, don't know the outsider Watts. But the betting is that probably uh, whoever is below Watts, I mean Watts and Sullivan, will pick up each other's second choices. But nobody knows what order they're going to finish in. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows how far back they are, and that's where People are saying, look, if, if Watts has enough of a lead on the first count, she may pick an up enough second choices, or she may simply be so far ahead that nobody can catch her. And we just don't know. That's why it's going to be very exciting to see the count on Saturday night. Uh, Carter, uh, I believe, is saying he thinks there'll be five counts. Yeah. doesn't think anybody will close the gap until the last count. So you'll see what you'll see is Sullivan will drop, then three others will drop, leaving just the, the the two names on the last, and we'll be sitting there on the edge of our seats waiting to see what the final count is. So, Rob, it seems to me that there's a bit of a nightmare situation here for the party. If we have allegations that, that there's something funny going on, and this thing ends up in a super, super tight two, three-way race, uh, and somebody wins by the narrowest of margins, that's, that's that has potential for some interesting um, uh, ripple effects. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see silence uh, from the losers in this campaign the same way we saw it in 2011. Remember Kevin Falcon? He thought that Christy Clark was cheating uh, and that there was there were problems, and he didn't say anything publicly about it afterwards. He was worried about splitting the party, that going through a leadership race and emerging with a victor and then whining about it makes him look weak, but also threatens to dissolve the party because you've just gone through this huge process and, and suddenly you're in a civil war. I get the impression this time around, especially with some of the, the sniping that's going back and forth, that if it is close and we're only talking about a, a you know a few hundred points here or there, that you're going to have candidates emerge from this complaining um, that the party didn't hold the rules up and that the vote shouldn't be legitimate. And that's going to be disastrous for the Liberal Party. Um, 
I mean, to come out of it, to talk about splintering the party. I think a lot of people are worried now that uh, no matter who wins, um, that there's going to be some dissatisfied members who wander off on their own, maybe even some MLAs who wander off on their own and suddenly you've got a splinter group and a off on the right wing, um, you know, um, destruction of the free enterprise coalition. Right. So I, it's going to be tough. They, they really, the party has to do something more than it's been doing, I think, to prevent that from happening. Yeah, I think we're all agreed on that. Uh, let's take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL or continue our conversation with Rob and Vaughn on the other side. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back. We're talking to... The tournament capital is one of the most dynamic... Well, there we are. Interesting stuff. Uh, the full pause of live radio. Uh, good morning. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Uh, guys, uh, we know the move that uh, George Heyman and uh, Premier John Horgan made on the Trans Mountain Front this week that uh, sparked some fury over in Alberta. Uh, Rachel Notley is already at war with Saskatchewan now, at war with BC on the pipeline front. Uh, uh, so what can we read into this? How much of this is posturing? How much of this is genuine hostility between, between Notley and Horgan? Well, uh, Shane, I got my combat fatigues out of the cupboard this morning, and I am hoping to be posted and embedded with the troops in either Rogers Pass or maybe the Crow's Nest or the Yellowhead. Uh, I'm just going by the rhetoric on this, which is supposedly a war between the two provinces. Uh, in all seriousness, I thought Premier Horgan handled it well yesterday when he got back from his Asian trade mission and said, cool it, everyone. British Columbia hasn't actually done anything yet. There is nothing to take to court here. Mm. What the B.C. government is doing is they're appointing a scientific panel and suggesting some regulations that, if implemented, might be able to restrict bitumen from coming through British Columbia and being shipped along the coast. But that review, that consultation with the B.C. public, that's going to take the better part of a year, and then the province will regulate only if there's a clear way to do it. When that happens, maybe a year from now, maybe longer, there might be something to challenge in court. Until then, all the province is really doing is consulting and posturing. But in Alberta, uh, Rachel Notley is treading ever closer to another provincial election with Jason Kenney circling, uh, and she's taking this pretty seriously, kind of yanking the plug on these electricity talks with the province, Rob. Yeah, I mean, the BC was talking to Alberta about an intertie, you know, a billion-dollar intertie with, uh, you know, help from the federal government. That that started in, under the Liberal government, uh, as the idea being increasing the amount of electricity we can sell in Alberta. They have promised to get off of their coal-fired power plants, so it could be a win-win. It doesn't involve Site C yet, which is a very delicate subject, the idea of Site C generating too much power that we have to sell it off, which was not the original sales pitch for that dam. So uh, Notley throwing Horgan a bone yesterday saying, well, this doesn't involve Site C, dot, 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 because it could, it could eventually <laughs> involve Site C. But So you have, you have that immediate retaliation from Notley, which is interesting. I don't think it does much uh, financially the province. Their $500 million impact number that Notley said yesterday is not something that BC officials could immediately confirm for me exists or was going to exist. So... She might have just pulled that number out of out of thin air, but uh, it's you know it's a the the rhetoric from Horgan I thought was interesting yesterday. He he kind of pulled no punches in responding to that 
to the Alberta Premier, and although he's mentioned that they're still friends and they've been friends for 20 years and not used to work in the legislature in B.C. with them, um, there is certainly some chippiness and some, mm-hmm. some bite to the words that are flying back and forth. As far as the pipeline goes, Vaughn, how much of this is, I mean, we the federal government's all for it. The B.C. government is somewhat handicapped here. Uh, they got the court battle. So how much of the strategy here is to delay, 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 and just hope at some point Kinder Morgan goes, oh, screw this? Yeah, I think that's uh, part of it. I, I, there's, there's two things going on here politically in B.C. One is, you know, George Heyman swallowed uh, Site C and defended Horgan on developing LNG, and this is him reaching out to the environment community and the Greens and saying, look, I'm on your side on some things, and he got lots of praise for that this week. So that's part of the politics. The other part of the politics, I think, is exactly what you say, Shane. Uh, You've got the Liberals, like Burnaby, like First Nations, like the environmentalists in the province, hoping that they can just delay and drag out and oppose and drive up the cost of going ahead with this project to the point where Kinder Morgan simply walks away. And the B.C. government is trying to be really careful that it doesn't do anything that is actually law or illegal or that could get it sued by Kinder Morgan for all the costs they've invested. So it's a matter of walking along a razor's edge and doing just the amount they can get away with without and and hoping to drive the company out of the province without going so far that Kinder Morgan does throw in the towel and sue the BC government for obstruction and bad faith. Rob, uh, what's your take on the delay thing? I mean, it seems to me that's really their only tool right now. It's it's actually a brilliant strategy when you think about it, especially in the climate we're in this kind of post-truth climate. We're talking about science here. Uh, when you listen to the environment minister, he's pointing out gaps that ex- existed from a 2014 Royal Society report, which nobody has read, uh, into, into oil impacts and water. We need more science. What is science? You know, what does it need to say? Who knows? We have the NEB, which did its science on the oil spills. We have lots of other science that's been done on the impact of oil spills. But we need, we need more science, Shane. What, what does it mean? You know, and I, it's a brilliant New Democrat strategy, I think, because most people would say, oh, yeah, I guess we do need more science, notwithstanding the fact this already, already went through a rigorous process, that there's examining how oil impacts the ocean is not something that has not been studied before. But yeah. <laughs> I think it touches on that, that sort of point that exists in our society right now, which is you can argue science till you're blue in the face on both sides. You just produce more science to back up your, your position. What, <laughs> then uh, that makes it really interesting. And I think a lot of people just kind of shrug and go, yeah, let's get some more science. We need more <laughs> science on oil. That makes sense, doesn't it? When, in fact, it already exists. Yeah, she started more science hashtag. Uh, quick question, last question on this one. Any hypocrisy on the Horgan front, going to Asia, talking energy, comes back home, uh, and immediately goes to town on Trans Mountain. Vaughn? Well, LNG is a lot easier to manage. Uh, LN, natural gas spills are easier to manage. Natural gas vents into the atmosphere, and uh, oil does not. So I think you can support 
natural gas development and LNG, uh, and still say you got problems with bitumen, and I think that's Horgan's position. So, you know, I think he can defend both positions on that. I think it's, uh, you know, it's it's hard. The prime minister is the one who has to make the case here in British Columbia that this project is needed in the national interest, and he says that, but how hard is he campaigning for that point of view out here, for persuading British Columbians that this is needed for the whole Canadian economy, not just for Alberta. Last word to you, Rob. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, remember the Prime Minister, when he approved this pipeline, said he was going to come out and explain his decision to British Columbians, use some of that capital he had to get a social license. And I, I didn't see him do that. And so that's why I think he's going to get a rough ride in Nanaimo today, where he's holding a town hall for people who are going to say, well, where, where have you been explaining this pipeline? He didn't use any of his political capital on it. He's left John Horgan and Christy Clark and and Rachel Notley to sell this thing. And that's where there's a lot of bitterness towards the federal government. I think that, that the superstar that is Trudeau made this decision, walked away from it, and uh, and didn't bother explaining it. Along with proportional representation, the list goes on and on. Uh, we'll take a quick break here on Radio NL and Inside Politics, and we'll have more with uh, Rob Shaw and Vaughn Palmer on the other side. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning and thank you for Kamloops Computer. <laughs> uh, kinks in the system. Good morning. Uh, thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw here on Inside Politics. Uh, anyone who listens to this show or has for any length of time uh, has heard us, uh, specifically Rob, Vaughn, and Keith, talk about uh, the threat that ICBC poses financially. And uh, Monday, which now seems like years ago, uh, we had a bombshell drop facing at the end of this fiscal potentially $1.3 billion net loss. Uh, let's talk about the political blame game first, and we'll dive into the other stuff. Vaughn, seven months versus 16 years, and yet the finger-pointing is going on. Who's to blame for this? Oh, the Liberals are being ridiculous on this. Uh, Shane, this is this is the Liberals doing. They knew there were serious problems at ICBC. They had an internal report that said that in 2014. It had advice on what to do. The Liberals didn't like it, so they suppressed it. Mike DeYoung admits that he just, we didn't, didn't even put it out to the public, didn't even show it to Todd Stone, because we're not going to do that, so why the hell would we even allow the report to exist? Mm -hmm. Um, This is the Liberals' doing. They started raiding the capital accounts at ICBC in... With the budget in 2010, they took a billion three out of ICBC to make their own books look good, and it just so happens that here we have a 1.3 billion dollar deficit. This is all the Liberals doing. Now the NDP are going to have to fix it and clean it up, and they're not happy with some of the things they're going to have to do, and the public isn't going to like them either. But uh, there's no avoiding now. You're going to have to fix the problem, and they're going to take some political heat for doing it. Uh, Rob, you've done some uh, stellar work on these on these Ernst and Young reports. Uh, what is your take on the excuse line on that front? Uh, DeYoung is not going to release the 2014 report or give his permission to, which apparently is required. And if you talk to Todd Stone, he'll say, well, I left the 2017 Ernst and Young report in David Eby's desk, and he threw it in the garbage. That's a dumpster fire. <laughs> Yeah, that's a bunch of spin, really. I mean, to be honest with you, uh, Shane, the 2017 Ernst & Young report, which people can read online, is far more detailed uh, and current uh, on the caps and what should be done at ICBC. And if you're looking for information, I'd start there. The only point of the 2014 report is that 
it raised alarm bells. It started to say to government, look, you're going to have to consider systemic issues like caps and, um, you know, and uh, not taking so much capital out of ICBC. It didn't go into the, the same level of detail, but it was a warning shot, and the Liberals chose to scrub that so that the public never saw it because they had no intention of doing it. So they have to wear that. I mean, look, it's the Liberals' fault that ICBC is in this mess. But it's the NDP's problem because a $1.3 billion loss on the books is more than the BC Lottery Corporation is expected to bring in in revenue to government uh, in the next year. So you basically wipe out an entire other crown corporation. It's, it's more than the carbon tax will bring in in revenue. It's a, it's a monstrous hit to the budget. And mm-hmm. Carol James, as finance minister, has a Herculean task uh, even prior to ICBC, to figure out how to fund $10 a day child care, maybe a renter's rebate, some type of housing initiatives, when she's already pulled the levers on her tax increases that the NDP promised in the election. She's going to have to do some other tax measures or fees to generate revenue, and now she's got this giant ICBC stone uh, weighing her down. And uh, <laughs> pun, intended, yeah, I mean, pun intended on well, that stone. Intended, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's the, it's, it's the NDP's problem, even if they didn't uh, create the mess now. Avon, to you, uh, the budget impact, uh, we've been promised a balanced budget, but as Rob aptly pointed out, I mean, we've already got a big financial moving parts here and, and black holes driven through it and expensive promises promised in it. Uh, are they in trouble? Yeah, look, it's going to be tough to balance, square up the books with this hanging over them. Uh, they've got to find a billion dollars to get rid of MSP premiums. They've only kept about half of their promises, and they've already used all of their tax room and on and on and on. You know, one thing that I think they should have considered, however, on ICBC, because it is the Liberals' fault and because it is partly because something that arose because the Liberals took all that money out of ICPC. I think they should have considered seriously producing a one-time charge on the provincial government books, give $1.3 billion from central government, give it to ICBC to square up the deficit for this year, and then going forward, deal with the gap going forward. Mm. It could have said, you got a deficit this year in the province of $1.3 billion, and it's the Liberals' fault. Uh, they're not doing that. Uh, David Eby said the reason they're not doing that is because it wouldn't fix the problem in the long run, and I agree that it wouldn't. But uh, I'm a little surprised that they didn't consider that option. They've ruled it out. Uh, it would at least put the, the corporation on a, on a sounder footing going forward. It would allow they would still have to do a lot of the things they don't want to do, like taking on the trial lawyers and probably raising rates and getting even tougher on distracted driving and going after the body shops and capping settlements for minor injuries. So it doesn't get them off the hook for fixing the problem in the long run, but at least it would square up the problem created by the Liberals from taking all that money out of ICBC. Yeah, interesting. Rob, your take? Yeah, well, and the the other advantage would have been that if they ran a massive deficit and blamed it on ICBC, they could have slid in child care and housing and the other things that they can't afford to do right now but are going to try and do anyways and just blame the whole mess on the Liberals and then try to figure it out the next year. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah, I guess you have to admire the new Democrats for insisting that they will balance the budget, although you have to look back at Christy Clark's government and wonder if her stubborn insistence on always having that balanced budget with as big a surplus as possible and being so frugal on the spending and obsessed with the AAA credit rating. That was really one of the downfalls of the Liberals, that they, they couldn't see the forest through the trees because 
on the spending that people wanted to see. They didn't care about AAA credit ratings and balanced budgets. They wanted the minimum wage. They wanted the welfare. They wanted the disability. They, you know, the, those type of things. And the yeah. Democrats have to be careful that balanced budgets are not the be-all and end-all. Uh, and that although some people will praise them for doing it, uh, if they can't honor their election promises, they're going to get a lot more criticism uh, than praise if the budget is balanced. Now, if memory serves, John Horgan, prior to the election campaign, did sort of raise the Trudeau-esque uh, avenue of, of going down the deficit path. So it's not like he hasn't ruled that out, but we'll have to see. Uh, the big impact in this ICBC thing, politics aside, is going to be on what we all end up paying. Uh, as the government looks to tackle this thing, Vaughn, are we facing, are drivers facing significant pain? I think the government is pretty determined that the first victim of all this not be drivers looking at a huge aid increase. It's been suggested $400 a year. Premier says if they're going to keep rates affordable. That's not on. So I think the, the, the first really big clash is going to be between the government and the Trial Lodge Association. And, you know, as somebody who works in the news media, I welcome organizations that take out ad campaigns. <laughs> Trial lawyers are already guessing where ICBC's headed on this and running ads. But, you know, the New Democrats are, are saying, well, we're not going to go full-blown no-fault auto insurance, but they are talking about bringing in legislation this spring that would cap claims for minor and soft t- tissue injuries that might also cap legal billings. They might bring in higher deductibles, so you'd be able to get a lower insurance rate if you were willing to, say, take a $2,000 deductible. So there's lots of stuff coming on that. It will be controversial. Uh, the real test here is how far... Will the New Democrats go in battling the lawyers? As you will know, back in the 1990s, the NDP government was going to try no fault. The lawyers went after them, and the lawyers won the public relations battle, and the government backed off. Here we go again, and it'll be interesting to see how far they go this time. Yeah, E.B. is a lawyer himself. Uh, Over to you, Rob. Yeah, I just think the New Democrats, they have to be careful when insisting that they're going to protect ratepayers from rate shock. At some point, yeah. you're going to have to raise rates. And the problem that the Clark government had is that she was elected as leader on that affordability promise, and in 2013 as well, that we're not going to allow the Crown Corps like ICBC and Hydro to ding your wallets. And she decided to go in and audit them all, fire some vice presidents, you know, do that kind of political, good-looking, um, you know, short-term stuff. And she... When you're and now John Horgan saying the same thing, we're not going to allow these corporations to raise your rates. Well, that's what they need to do. <laughs> so that's a very short-term strategy, I think, and uh, it's not going to carry them today. But significant short-term pain. Voters will not like that. Fun. Well, that's true. But you know, there there is no pot of money out there that hasn't been tapped already, and. You know, you're quite right that the new Democrats have to find, rustle up the money for a 10-year child care plan that hasn't been funded yet. They've got to figure out how to get rid of a billion dollars worth of MSP premiums every year because they're going to do that. And where do you offset that? And on and on and on, right? They've got a housing plan. They've got to take action on that. Some of this is cans kicked down the road by the liberals, but some of it is fiscal math that just doesn't add up. You can't put ICBC on a sound footing without raising rates. You have to do a whole bunch of other things as well, but at the end of it, there's also going to be a rate increase. Yeah, interesting times ahead, and I assume, Vaughn, do you think that we're going to see all this in the budget, or we're going to see ICBC changes before that? 
I think we'll start to see that in the budget, but for the ICBC changes, Shane, you need legislation. They need to bring in legislation to cap people's ability to sue for wide-open damages, and that takes a bill. That'll be before the House this spring, and that will be where we see the real battle line open up between the government and the lawyers. Vaughn, uh, Rob, thank you so much. Always appreciate talking to you guys. Yep, bye-bye. There we go. Vaughn Palmer, Rob Shaw, both of the Vancouver Sun. Uh, we're going to wrap up this segment. Uh, we're talking to those guys. We're going to take a quick break uh, on the other side. So we're going to talk housing. UBCM tabled a rather bold strategic vision to tackle the housing crisis. Metro Vancouver Chair, Port Coquitlam Mayor, Greg Boer will join us. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Politics. Dull. Not in this province. Listen in as some of BC's best political minds take you Inside Politics with Shane Woodford, Friday mornings at 9.08 on Radio NL, Local First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Centre, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by Port Coquitlam Mayor of Venture Vancouver Chair Greg Moore. Greg, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, first thing first, how come you didn't unveil that UBCM thing here in Kamloops? We were considering it. It was <laughs> right up there on the list. But. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, you guys have tabled a very, very interesting strategic plan, 32 recommendations. Probably the boldest stuff, in my opinion, uh, is on the rental, the speculation side. Before we kind of dive into the specifics of it, I'm curious to know, in its entirety, Considering the NDP are about to table a housing plan uh, in the budget coming at the end of the month, how does this mesh work with, cooperate with whatever they might do? So we started this process last August. Uh, fundamentally, we started because there was a lot of groups coming out with, if we just did you know, one thing, you know, if we just built more and we increased the supply, we would solve the affordable housing um, situation that's going on. And we knew that UBCM knew that that wasn't true. So they struck this committee. Um, one of the things that UBCM always tries to do is influence provincial government or federal government uh, legislation. So we wanted to ensure that not only were we um, letting the provincial government know where we were going with this report before we even released it yesterday, but to because we want to ensure that some of the things that we're talking about here come out in that throne speech or budget uh, in the next couple of weeks. Okay, so if they come out with something that takes care of, I'll just pull a number of there, say 15 of your 32 recommendations, uh, then what? Is you just work with the ones you can municipally? Do you then lobby for the other ones that you think should happen? How does that work? I think we would probably continue to lobby. I think, you know, I don't think we have an expectation that all 32s, because some of them are on us, but anything that has provincial government related to it is going to get addressed in the next couple of weeks. Some of them, because some of them uh, require a longer term thought and a longer term engagement. So, for example, we said that maybe it's time to take a look at uh, how the rezoning process works. Uh, it's, a, it's a process that was developed decades ago. We have these public hearings, which in some cases uh, is just a public speaking contest but really doesn't have meaningful community engagement. And so maybe it's time, we don't have a solution to it, but maybe it's time to take a look at it. Something like that would take a lot longer. Uh, I was interested in what you tabled on the speculation side of things. I know that a lot of the attention gets hogged up in foreign buyers uh, who, yes, they're a factor. I don't think that they are as big a factor that if you somehow deal with them, it's a magic bullet to this whole thing. Matter of fact, there is no magic bullet to this whole thing. But uh, you guys have tabled a plan to tackle speculation. How important is that in your mind? 
Uh, well, it's very important. And, and, and to be clear, we put foreign and domestic speculation into uh, what we're trying to address because we heard, because this is a strategy for all of British Columbia, we've heard about the domestic speculation that happened uh, in the Kootenays, for example. you got people from Alberta and Calgary coming and buying places in the Kootenays yeah. uh, and really not living in them, maybe living in them a month a year, but it's really putting a pressure onto their housing market. Or we see people from the lower mainland that are being able to sell their house for a huge amount of money and then are now moving out to other parts of British Columbia. And it's putting pressure on some of the Okanagan markets, but also into Victoria. And how? what are the effects of that? But specifically, we want to, you know, I think we have about six or seven recommendations to deal with uh, the demand side management, everything from removing some of the bigger loopholes uh, in the in the current foreign buyers tax. Um, one of the things that we're, we're proposing is a speculation tax. So that basically the way that that would work is if someone uh, purchases a, a condo, a pre-built condo, um, and they flip it before they even move into it, they're going to pay a certain tax, which might be quite... We didn't put a percentage show because we think that, one, it might be different around the province, and two, we would need to do some deep economic analysis of this. But it would be quite high. And then after year one, if they, after they've lived in it, if they sell it, then it reduces. And maybe after five years, that speculation tax goes down to zero. So that's a concept that we're putting forward uh, as to help with that speculation market. Would there be an exemption for the first time you flip? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm kind of I'm being I'm being cheeky, but at the same time, the real estate market to some degree is based on speculation. Well, and fair enough, but we we uh, we know that uh, speculation and flipping is not helping our housing. It's in fact making our housing crisis worse because people are uh, speculating. They're buying. Yeah, sure, they're investing and they're taking a risk on the market, but they're. What it has done is driven up the price of, of condos specifically mm. uh, to this unmanageable area. Uh, on the rental side, also interesting, zoning for renting, driving up rental stock, which has been sort of a sub-headline of this whole housing crisis, is not only has it become, uh, especially in Metro Vancouver, your neck of the woods, incredibly difficult to buy a home, condo, whatever, uh, but now people are really getting squeezed out on the rental side. We need to create a bunch of new stock there. Talk to me about the zoning change. Why do we need a zoning in, in any city for rental? Sure. So uh, right now, cities do not have the ability to... Uh, zone land for rental. Uh, what cities do is when a developer comes in to do a rezoning to go from a lower density to a higher density or, you know, no density to higher density, whatever that looks like, it doesn't matter what part of, you know, high density is different in Vancouver than it is in George. But uh, the cities have to negotiate any rental. And they negotiate, could be market-based rental, and if they're in Vancouver and Burnaby and areas, they could negotiate non-market rental because the, the land or the air above is so valuable. They have a lot more negotiating power. But for the rest of us, we don't have that negotiating power. So if we were able to zone an area, it could just be a block, it could be a few blocks, it could be a whole neighborhood. But if we had the ability to zone, it would stop the land value speculation going up which would then, because they can't sell it off for market-based condos, mm. that would keep the land price down, which would then transfer into uh, a more reasonable market rent. So it would basically protect the tenure and protect the land from being switched from one to the other. Yeah, and, and you know, we, see, we talk about condo flipping, but, but land valuations are going up substantially. And if, you know, someone, uh, you know, they buy some land, they, they do some drawings on it, talk about the density they get. They don't even go through the rezoning, and they've increased the value of the land. Then they go through rezoning and get to third or fourth reading, and that land value goes up even higher. 
And so uh, we want to try to, the, the rental zone would allow us to stop that land valuation from going through the roof. What about upzoning, Greg? The idea being, I think they do it in Vancouver and they can because of the charter, but, uh, you know, a developer comes, says, listen, we're going to buy this plot of property, uh, we're going to build rental stock. And then Vancouver says, oh, well, we want to incent that, so we're going to allow you to build maybe higher or more uh, than the zoning permits because you're committing to rental stock. Yeah, and we put some best practices in the paper for local governments to learn from each other. Actually, one of the best uh, examples of that is New Westminster. Um, they have a whole strategy that if you, you, they'll give you variances. So they'll vary parking, they'll vary density, they'll vary some setbacks um, for developers if they make it a rental project. And the key to that, though, is that that rental project has to, so the more in New Westminster, the more variances they take, the longer the project has to be kept as a rental, right? So you have to put a, a covenant on the property that's going to be rental for at least 20 years or 30 years and so on. The, the challenge that we had that we could potentially have, and this is why the provincial government's 114,000 rental product that they want to have built over the next 10 years is so important. We're seeing rentals in Metro Vancouver, and we're seeing it in other parts of the province, being built to the point that you made people can't afford the housing so they're moving into the rental place space there's not that much rental because it hasn't been built for 30 or 40 years since the federal government got rid of the tax incentives so the market is now building rental because the rents are high enough to actually make it work in certain cases but what the development community does is they stratify all of those units so in five years or ten years if the developer wants needs some capital for another project they can sell all of those strata rentals off and take the capital, and now we just have more strata in the unit, in the in the marketplace. So what we need to do is work with the provincial and federal government around tax incentives, around other incentives to ensure that we're getting long-term market or long-term rental stock built, not just some short-term market-based rental. Uh, the whole issue based around affordability, uh, a couple questions on that. Number one, uh, home prices are one thing, but the one thing that's always bothered me about Metro Vancouver uh, is the income in the region. It has never really gone sharply up as much as the cost of living has. How do you, how do you battle that side? Yeah, I think you make a really good point there that, that we talk about affordability. And affordability is, you know, it, it's relative to the community you're living in. You know, there's a lot, we have lots of examples around British Columbia of housing prices going up, but the average wage not, or actually going down in some cases. So, uh, yeah, there's two sides to this equation. There's how do you manage or attempt to manage a really hot uh, real estate market but on the other side, how do you close that gap by trying to bring up average raise wages? So here in Metro Vancouver, for example, um, we're, our paper didn't our paper alluded to it, but it did not give any strategies because we weren't we're, we weren't trying to address economic development per mm -hmm. se. But here in Metro Vancouver, we're pulling together a regional prosperity initiative of different uh, local government, the business sector, First Nations, labor, academia to come together to work on regional prosperity and economic development about how can we drive up. Uh, the average household income. The other thing that, that bothers me about the debate is is it's based around affordable housing, and I think there needs to be some context there because at the end of the day, while you might drive down prices and introduce some sanity to the market, I don't know if you will ever make housing affordable in Vancouver. It's a desirable location; people want to live there. Comparable cities, just I mean, there, there's there's no comparable cities that are affordable, and it's kind of a dodgy part of that debate to me. Well, and, 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 you know, we talk about the global market flow of, of capital. And so uh, London, Singapore, um, Paris, other cities around the world that are, 
you know, have, have good, strong democracies, have a good fundamental economy, uh, uh, are also seeing global capital moving in and creating this affordability uh, crisis that we're dealing with. So that's why the rental side of our discussion paper, which uh, takes up, you know, 16 of the 32 recommendations, is so we put so much weight into it. And that 114,000 units that the province is going to build and the, the federal government housing strategy, which is going to put in you know, $40 billion over the next 10 years, they need to work, provincial and federal government need to work with each one of us as local governments on what is the right type of affordable housing and market, from market-based down, to, you know, maybe affordable co-ops, all the way down to non-market affordable rental. What does it look like for me here in Port Coquitlam? What does it look like uh, for your community in Kamloops? What does it look like in Prince George? Because it's going to be a different um, equation in each one of those communities. And we need to make sure that we get it right. And from our opinion, we need Ottawa and Victoria to work with us locally, not just the cities, but also our nonprofit communities, to make sure that we're building the right product in the right locations. All right, uh, you guys have tabled the document. Uh, is generally it is, is generated discussion. Uh, that's all to the good. Uh, the province is going to do whatever it does at the end of the month. So, as far as this document, this strategy is concerned with UBCM, what's next steps other than waiting to see what the province does? Uh, well, that's partially the next step. Is we've been uh, we've met with the minister, Minister Robinson, that's in, responsible for housing, a couple times. Um, hopefully, we'll have a chance to have a chat with her before uh, the budget and the throne speech comes down. But we'll see what's in it, and then we'll put a strategy together about how we need to uh, work with them to have the other parts addressed. And I'm sure because, as you stated off the top. This is probably the most extensive study or with recommendations that's been done uh, on the affordable housing crisis for not only Metro Vancouver, but for the province. Um, I think it's going to stir a lot of discussion, and I think discussion is good, especially when we, t we worked really hard to frame this as there is this is a complex issue, uh, and there's different reasons and there's different solutions for different parts of this province and it, but there's not one silver bullet for anywhere in this province to make this work yeah this is a huge complex problem and it's been it's been addressed far too late in my opinion uh greg uh i know you're not running for mayor again down in port coquitlam any truth to the rumor you're coming up here to take a shot at the mayor's chair <laughs> no truth <laughs> <laughs> all right good to talk to you brother or to leave it politics yeah talk to you soon thanks greg Thanks, James. Bye for now. There's Metro Vancouver Chair and Port Coquitlam Mayor Greg Moore, and that's it for today's Inside Politics. We'll see you again on Radio NL on next Friday. Local. First. CHNL. AM 610 in Kamloops. RadioNL.com. The Valley's first choice for local news. Welcome back. Well, that was the end of the on-air portion of the show, if you're listening to Radio NL. Now we have some podcast bonus content. First up, a conversation with uh, Paul Doroshenko from Acumen Law. Paul, how are you? Pretty good. Yourself? Oh, I'm surviving. You're up to your old ways. Troublemaking again, I see. Well, I, I don't think it's troublemaking. <laughs> we wanted to get the uh, the facts straight on uh, on whether or not uh, there was carnage on the roads in BC. Yeah. Cell phone use. Well, let's build up to that. Uh, you put out a thing uh, basically saying uh, the province has come out with, and I believe the number is 80, uh, that used that stat as far as distracted driving and the amount of uh, carnage and mayhem, as you put it. Uh, but you kind of dove into this, and you found out uh, when, it, when it concerns the numbers, uh, there seems to be a little spin at play here. So what's going on? Well, you know, it's actually, it's, it's very interesting because I was thinking about it last night and I've had to change my mind about this. You know, we in BC, the government has for a long time 
um, published these distracted driving stats saying between 78 and 88, depending on the year, you know, people die every year in BC from distracted driving. And they always say, you know, it's cell phones, it's cell phones, it's cell phones. The police officers, you know, are told that it's all cell phones. Uh, but, you know, I've for years and decades have not had anybody come into my office uh, charged with an offense where they were using a cell phone and killed somebody. And, you know, I deal with a, a lot of driving cases. Uh, so we decided to make a freedom of information request from the coroner's service to find out just how many people are dying as a result of cell phones each year. And, uh, in, like, in 2014, there was nobody. Um, <laughs> uh, it's maybe two a year. So out of this 78 to 88, um, you know, it's basically two people a year. Now, I, you know, I don't want anybody to die from it, and I'm not saying that driving and using your cell phone are safe. It's an offense, and there's a reason for it. I, you know, I, I that is particularly if you're in a moving vehicle, it's unsafe. But the focus has been, for the last few years, on ticketing people who the police can easily catch at intersections picking up their phone uh, when they're stuck, stuck in traffic. Uh, and, you know, those people get a ticket, then they've got to pay the fine, and then they've got the driver point premium they've got to pay, and then if they get two tickets in five years, they're facing a four-month driving prohibition. Mm. We're coming down really harsh on them, and the justification is these 78 to 88 people dying every year. Well, the reality is that's not cell phones. I was interested to read ICBC's response, uh, which was put out yesterday, to, to to what you had to say, and it basically danced on the whole the whole premise of the response as well. It's a safety issue. It's dangerous. You shouldn't be driving. Which, okay, yeah, you're correct, but they didn't address at all, like even remotely, the basic premise that you had, which is the numbers are being spun. Yeah, and that's the problem, you know. And it's it's they you can back up and look at the the escalation of penalties. Uh, over the last five or six years uh, for people with, with tickets for using an electronic device, you know, that's the ticket. Uh, but they don't talk about, you know, electronic device usage uh, being the issue because it's not an issue when you look at the actual numbers of people dying. You know, the, the coroner service conducts an investigation any time that it's uh, uh, likely to, to be a factor. Uh, and what they've determined is like one or two people a year in the lower mainland, nobody. I don't think anybody in Kamloops in, in, in the entire stats that they had. But, you know, you're, the people who get these cell phone tickets are the people who hear their phone beep while they're sitting at an intersection and decide to glance at the front of it. You know, the moment they pick it up, the police officers, they are, you know, jumping out from behind a pole or whatever. Uh, and they're giving them a, a big expensive ticket with demerit points and, and driver risk premium and, and uh, likely a driving prohibition after that. I don't think it's a, you know, I, I don't think we can form sound government policy uh, if ICBC has been giving us, uh, you know, unrealistic statistics. And maybe this was the method that the BC Liberals were trying to come up with to balance the books for ICBC, just, you know, basically make, uh, make these people pariahs and make them pay. But that's not, you know, that's not the discussion we should be having. Having we should be having a discussion based on on the actual figures, the stats, something that they can show. All right, you've dove. You've obviously you dived into this issue. You've determined there's some weirdness with the numbers, which makes for a great news segment. But uh, purpose behind this, uh, Paul? Are you going to forge ahead with some kind of legal action? And what are next steps as far as you're concerned? Well, I, I don't think there's any constitutional challenge that you can do against these these offenses, so that's not really going to do anything. I think it's up to the government to take a close look at, at how they're enforcing cell phone tickets and, and maybe uh, and maybe come up with a different scheme for 
people who just pick up their phone at a set of lights because those people shouldn't be facing the the amount of punishment that they're facing right now. We get about 12 to 15 people a week right now phoning us after they've got a notice of intent to prohibit from the superintendent's office because they got their second cell phone ticket in the last five years. You know, those people are not the risk to the public. The guy who's driving beside me uh, and who's texting and, and Snapchatting, uh, he's the one who's the risk to the public. And, you know, we should probably have a very different offense for that person. Uh, and maybe, you know, immediate roadside prohibitions. I, I think you, you, you would find a lot of people would be supportive of an immediate seven-day roadside prohibition for that guy. Uh, but for the person, you know, the, the mother who hears the, uh, the text message she's expecting from, you know, her husband about picking up the kids, who then gets a, a $400 ticket and, and uh, faces a four-month driving prohibition, you know, that's just not fair. So I think it's a I think it's an issue that that we need to be able to discuss in our society to come up with proper policy. Uh, but you know, even the politicians have been misled. Mm. It seems to me there's some commonality here between this and, and the drunk driving side, which uh, I know that you uh, specialize in. But uh, there seems to be this thing on a government level or a PR level where we say, okay, here's this group of people, drunk drivers, distracted drivers, they're bad people. And suddenly we can just throw this blanket thing at it. And not to diminish, you shouldn't be drunk driving, you shouldn't be on your phone while you're driving. But at the other hand, you you're also do the right of, of responsible process, yeah? Well, it's it's that, and it's also looking at at these people and trying to make them a revenue generator for the government, mm. right? It's these are the people we've we've cast as pariahs. These are the people we've decided are going to be the bad people. Uh, if we spin the story and say it's eighty eight people a year dying from it, then everybody's going to hate them, and there's going to be public support for coming down hard and not having a great review process. Uh, and and that's basically yeah, that's fundamental similarity you know we we <laughs> we're, we're, the, the, the punishment is is disproportionate to the offense really mm. when it comes to these people who just pick up their phone uh when it comes to the uh, 90-day irp scheme the the punishment is disproportionate to the to the completely inadequate review process uh on the drunk driving front paul i haven't talked to you in a while on this i know you were challenging uh, the provincial legislation where are we standing on that right now yeah, well, we're into version three of this legislation, each one botched by the BC Liberals. The um, the version that's now before the uh, that's now being used, we did a constitutional challenge for. We made our arguments in uh, December. We're waiting for a decision from the court. So you know, we were seeking to have it struck down or or, or some remedy, uh, and we're confident that we had a good argument, and we think that we got a good hearing. So uh, we're just waiting now for a decision. Could right. come any day. All right, what happens if, if you win in this thing? What, what does that mean for the law of the land? Good question. You know, we were wondering about that as we walked out. We feel that we're that something is going to arise from it. Uh, whether or not the court can uh, order the legislation changed, uh, give it a period of time for it to be changed, strike down ones that are, are before the court. I mean, our, our feeling is that if you challenged your 90-day immediate roadside prohibition under this current version of the legislation, there should be some remedy for you. Uh, people who didn't challenge it may not have anything. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult to predict the future. You can only hmm. sort of glean from the past, uh, and, uh, and we really don't know what the remedy will be. And really it depends on what the judge, you know, if the judge, a baby bathwater scheme, you know, maybe the judge is going to say this entire scheme in its current uh, iteration has to be, has to be turfed. Uh, maybe they'll give them some time to do it. I don't know. You know, it's um, it'll be interesting to see. Well, it'll be upheld. If it's upheld, then then uh, I can tell you it's not something that's going to inspire a, 
a whole lot of confidence uh, in the justice system in BC. Uh, if it's not upheld, Paul, does that mean a retroactive effect on uh, people who have been accused of drunk driving and have paid all sorts of, uh, I don't know, fines and, and all sorts of legal consequences, or no? We hope so. Yeah. So, I mean, the government's been through this once, okay, and the government was sort of forgiven for their for their unlawful uh, legislation by virtue of saying, well, you know, we're trying to be innovative and we're trying to we're trying to do something here and, you know, we're not perfect, so, you know, don't, don't punish us, the government, don't make us pay back people who we wrongly wrongly punished uh, that argument doesn't really fly anymore so uh, you know they've been through they're on to version three the version three they tried to swing it back as close as possible to version one which was found unconstitutional uh, and the reason they did that was because version two people were actually succeeding because the review process was being you know we were slowly forcing it to be fair uh, and that was actually when we argued version two and it was found to be constitutional the judge said i see deficiencies here i see problems with this but they're things that you can fix by going to court and, and adjudicating these, you know, separate issues. And we said, okay, well, that's, we went ahead and did that. And when we started doing that, we started succeeding. And, uh, and the government at the time uh, looked at it and said, well, we don't want these lawyers to succeed for people. We want to, you know, as far as we're concerned, we'd like people just to be guilty uh, because that's their whole scheme, right? It's immediate roadside punishment. They have to pay for the towing and storage if people are, are successful on their challenging their IRP. Mm-hmm. The government was looking at it and started to see that they were bleeding, and they, you know, that wasn't the whole idea. The idea with IRPs was to to generate money, not lose money. Uh, and um, you know, so uh, they made these changes and put it back to the to the first version, or very close to the first version in our submission. Uh, and you know, hopefully, we can show that that's a cynical move by the government. Uh, last question to you, Paul. I know I've done stories with the, with you on this before, but how are we doing as far as the backlog of dealing with uh, with people accused of, of drunk driving? I, I know that there wasn't enough adjudicators, or the process was weird, and there was, what, at one point, about 1,100 people on the waiting list just to get dealt with. How are we doing there? Uh, we've improved it substantially. Uh, there's not much of a waiting list now. I have to say that you can, you can, the government can take some credit in the last, you know, six, eight months. They've they have wound it back a lot, but the backlog we now have is in court. Uh, we're, we, you know, we, we basically took drunk driving cases out of provincial court where we used to have trials, criminal cases, and now we have their internal tribunal. Their internal tribunal, you know, hit a wall rendering decisions fast enough. Then they started rendering decisions, and people are appealing those decisions to B.C. Supreme Court. We get to B.C. Supreme Court, and there's no judges. So in order to, to get a hearing on, it's a, it's a ridiculous, antiquated system where you get on the phone at 8 in the morning and start calling, 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 calling to try and get a, <laughs> a, a, a trial coordinator. It's like a once-a-month thing to try and schedule a date for a hearing. And you may not get a judge, and you show up there in court, and, and you know it doesn't matter that you've scheduled it. It doesn't mean there's going to be a judge there. So we've got a problem with uh, 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 the federal government being way behind in appointing judges. Uh, in this province. I don't know about other provinces, but the backlog has been shifted from provincial court, which is, you know, functioning pretty well these days as a result of taking all those impaired driving cases out of it. Uh, But the backlog's been shifted to B.C. Supreme Court, which ironically is far more expensive because you're paying judges more. you got a more expensive building. Yeah. Uh, You know, it it, it costs more money to handle it. It's paperwork intensive, which means that there's tons of court staff involved. Um, So in in the end, you know, the net benefit, basically they, they... you could buy yourself 18 months of benefit before it starts hitting the other level of court. All right. We're out of time, Paul. Always a pleasure. Thank you, man. Nice to talk to you.
That's Paul Doroshenko from Acumen Law talking about some funky, distracted driving numbers as well on the uh, drunk driving front. We'll take a quick break at Inside Politics on the other side. BC's new Chief Medical Health Officer. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Good morning. Welcome back. Pleasure to welcome to the program uh, BC's new Chief Medical Health Officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry. How are you, Bonnie? I'm very well, thank you. So, uh, first day on the job, uh, jitters, uh, anticipation, what are you feeling? Um, a, a little bit of anticipation, I guess, and a little bit of, it's actually um, a little bit lonely. Um, I'm so used to having uh, Dr. Kendall to work with, and uh, we've worked so closely over the last few years. Um, not having him here is a bit of a change. Yeah, I bet. And uh uh, of course, it was Perry's last day on the job yesterday. Uh, I know personally it was it was a pleasure to work with with Dr. Kendall over the years. He was uh, knowledgeable, informative. Uh, he would uh, often, you know, always return a phone call. So uh, you must know him a little better than I do, being a colleague. But uh, your thoughts on his tenure in the office? Well, I have been so lucky to have worked so closely with Perry for the last really 12 years, but the last three and a half as his deputy. And and you're absolutely right. He's really been, um, he's seen so much and he's worked on so many different issues across the 18 years that he's been in this position and even before that. And there's so much respect across the country for the work that he's done and he's a wealth of wisdom. Um, so I'm hoping, and he is, he has assured me that uh, his sage advice is still going to be available when I need it. So that's very reassuring. <laughs> yeah, I bet it is. Uh, I know that when you had your official introduction, uh, you named uh, the two biggest challenges before you, uh, one being the overdose crisis and the other being the, uh, being the advent of legal marijuana. Uh, considering we just saw a, a rather grim record set, uh, for uh, overdose deaths in the province last year in the, uh, with, uh, what was it, about 1,422, and that's preliminary data, so it looks like they, those might go up. Uh, how are we going to tackle this? It's been two years now. Uh, everything in the kitchen sink has been thrown at this thing. Uh, how do you bring those numbers down? Well, uh, it is disturbing, and it's very distressing to know that despite all of the work that has happened so far, there are still families dealing with this tragedy every day. And we are working very closely with the new ministry, uh, and I think when we declared the emergency, we really knew that this was not something that could be solved in a short period of time. There are so many complex issues, and there are so many gaps and needs that have been identified but at least we are on that track of identifying them, knowing where the, the main issues are, and building a system. And it's a system that is going to help people not just today, but for the future as well. And that takes time, and it's frustratingly long time, um, unfortunately. But I, I think we've made some good progress. We know that some of the, um, particularly some of the really critical new things that we've done to prevent people from dying are making a difference in, in many areas. We have much work to do around stigma and and making it a safe conversation for people to have with their family members, with their friends about using drugs and the risks of using drugs and how to help people and talk to them where they are um, in their their trajectory of use. So that's um, we just launched this week a, a new campaign to to try and reduce that stigma so that people who are using alone um, feel safe finding someone that they can talk to and connect with. 
Is there other avenues to target that group? And by group, I mean the people that are using a loan other than the stigma itself. I mean, I'm caught by, I think, what was it, 90% of the deaths now are people mm-hmm. who are using a loan in a building in their own home, whatever. Uh, and it seems if you can somehow effectively target that group by whatever means, that, that might make a difference. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what that does show is that, that, that the work that we've done around overdose prevention sites and having naloxone available and much of the um, the, the initiatives, uh, very innovative stuff that is happening around the province has stopped people from dying in some settings. So there's a, particularly people who are street entrenched who are, have long-term issues with problematic substance use. So now what we're seeing is that people are, um, they may have had an injury, they may have been on opioids from the past, they may be experimenting, and they're afraid to talk to people or they're not talking to their family members. And as you say, now that highest proportion is particularly men and young men who are in a home situation, they have family, they have supports, they have friends. So being able to have those conversations and knowing where to go to to know what to say and to how to have those conversations. And there's lots of really interesting things that are coming through the new Emergency Operations Centre about how can we use social media or other types of connectivity um, to allow people to um, let people know when they're using and at least um, have a naloxone available, have somebody who can check in on them so that um, if people do overdose, they can have a medical intervention to prevent them from dying. Uh, when you were dealing with this this issue, um, back to the stigma again, and one of the things I'm always struck by is there's a segment of the population, and I get it occasionally when I tweet out or put on social media stories about the overdose crisis, uh, there's a segment of the population that kind of falls under the, why are we doing the harm reduction, uh, it's a waste of time, it's not doing anything, or the more extreme uh, you know, these guys are all addicts who cares about them and essentially just, you know, why don't we just let them die? How do you tackle that mindset among the population? Yeah, and that's that's very disturbing and distressing. And I think we need, um, that's the purpose of the campaign that we just started with the Canucks is, you know, people who use drugs are people. And they are our friends, our family, our brothers and sisters. And people use them for many, many reasons that we may not understand ourselves, but it's around their own psychological, emotional history of trauma and pain. And we need to um, allow people to understand that and to see that, that this is not um, those people out there living on the streets in the downtown east side and we should just um, abandon them. And, you know, that is not... What we want people to understand that these are people and they all have reasons that they're in the place that they're in. And at some point, they may be able to, with support and compassion, um, make it to a place where they can um, accept recovery. And that recovery journey will be hard and it, they will need our support in that too. And so that is the bigger picture of building that system that provides the, the, the it removes those barriers to allow people to access when they're ready the treatment they need to, to get their lives back again. Uh, the idea of uh, increased use of those drug testing strips uh, that would tell people if there's something illicit in the drugs they're about to use outside of where they're currently available in pharmacies, etc. Uh, when might we see that and where might we see it? I know that there was some speculation we could just give them directly to addicts. Would they be made available perhaps, I don't know, in, in nightclubs or bars? or uh, how, how might it work and when might we see that? 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really um, think that, that there's some great things that might happen with um, the, the drug testing, and there's a number of uh, sort of test pilots. And again, this is going through the new emergency operations center. So what we want to do is um, do different things in different areas and see which ones work and be able to scale up those models more quickly. The challenge with the test strips is they were designed as a, for urine testing. And so we need to validate how well they work on testing small samples of drug. And they are very specific for fentanyl and a few of the um, the manufactured analogs of fentanyl. So we're still at the point where they're not 100%. So it's not like turning on a light switch and you can say yes or no. Um, and there's a bunch of new analogs that are coming into the market and causing people to overdose who don't, uh, who aren't, haven't been exposed to the, these new uh, formulations before. So the test strips don't test for those. And what we don't want is for people to use them and falsely think that there's nothing in their drug and then um, don't take precautions. So that's the point we're at now. I think within the next, and unfortunately it's probably six months to a year before we get some really good information on how best to use them to support people in modifying what they do when they're taking their drug. Uh, an issue that's been raised locally here, uh, Bonnie, uh, I want to put in front of you. Uh, the idea is we have the mobile harm reduction site that kind of mm-hmm. shifts around the city. Uh, and one of the problems that's cropped up uh, is that the staff there are handing out, and apparently there's no cap on the number. They just hand out wads of needles to addicts and, and who go off and uh, then use those needles to, to, and I get the idea, we're trying to cut down on bloodborne diseases. But what's happening is uh, they're then discarding those needles and our community's not alone in this. Uh, there is some thought in this community from, from mayor and council and other uh, stakeholders that perhaps there should be some thought to capping or restricting or somehow uh, regulating the sheer amount of needles that are handed out to addicts to try and ease off on the ones that end up getting littered across the community. Where do you fall on that? Well, I, I think um, clean needles are a really important um, measure, a harm reduction measure that we've had in place for quite a long time that reduces um, people sharing needles and people who use drugs uh, who share um, needles are more likely to exchange things like hepatitis C and, and um, HIV. So we know that they are an effective measure to prevent transmission of diseases, and that's one of the per- the main um, impetus for starting the harm reduction programs. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you the details about your community, but I know in all of the places where we have a harm reduction um, equipment that's being handed out, that there are teams that um, look for, uh, go up and clean, look around areas and make sure that um, needles are cleaned up. And I think working with your community to, to um, make sure that uh, there is a process in place for making sure needles are returned and exchanged. Putting limits on them is not going to um, solve any problems, and I think it's much more important to develop a, a community action plan to um, make sure that needles are brought back and that there's um, responsibility for people for cleaning up in the neighborhood. Mm, okay. Uh, I'm curious where you fall on, on some of the new technologies out there. The school district uh, here uh, just recently passed a policy banning vaping. I know we had e-cigarettes, now we've got vaping. Is that something that's, and I know there's some health risks to kids and et cetera, is that something that should be more heavily regulated in your mind? 
Well, um, vaping is an interesting thing. I think there is probably some use for that in helping people quit smoking, but absolutely I support um, keeping anything that uh, encourages um, young people to take up um, smoking of any kind, and vaping is fits in that sort of, even though it's not tobacco, there are uh, most of the products that are vaped have nicotine in them, and it's nicotine that is very addictive, and there has been some studies that have shown, particularly out of the states, that have looked at um, young people who vape are much more likely to start um, smoking tobacco. So we want to do all we can to keep our low initiation of tobacco rates low in BC, and uh, I'm in agreement with um, keeping them off school property for sure. Uh, and last but not least, uh, the issue of legalized marijuana. It's going to be legal or made legal July 1st. Uh, this is a fascinating, I find it a fascinating topic, and the sheer amount of work out there has to be done on so many levels. In your mind, what are the challenges here from a health perspective? Well, from a public health perspective, I think what we want to find is that sweet spot where um, it's not marketed um, and it's not marketed particularly to children um, and to young people. So again, we want to make sure that the most vulnerable to the adverse effects of cannabis, which are young people up to age 25, really, but uh, make sure that young people aren't initiating smoking at a, at a young age or using of cannabis, and that um, uh, that they understand uh, the the pros and cons and the safer use of of cannabis as well. So ideally, what we would like to see is that it is a restricted market, um, that it is accessible for people. People who want, um, like alcohol as a legal product, that people who want to use it, but the people are aware of the pros and cons and of the potential side effects of it. And particularly, we want to make sure that um, that young people have a better idea about cannabis and about what the risks might be. I know the province is about to unveil a retail model at some point early this year. Uh, any recommendation from you on where that should be sold or maybe where it shouldn't be sold? Well, I know there's been a lot of push about um, selling it and co-locating with alcohol sales, and um, there are a number of reasons why uh, I support the the, um, the letter that we sent out from the Health Officers Council and, and Dr. Kendall around not co-locating those. Uh, there's a, for a whole variety of reasons. So I, I think um, you know we've given our advice to government, and it's their um, responsibility to make those decisions. Um, so what we would like to see is a model that um, protects it from young people in particular, and I think that's what our focus is on. Perfect. Anything else on the marijuana front, Bonnie, that, uh, that you feel is important? Well, I think it's, a, it's going to be a challenging file, and uh, I, I really think um, there'll probably be a little blip and lots of um, sort of sorting things out over time, but uh, I think having a good regulatory framework for this will make it um, much less dangerous than what it is now when we don't have any regulation at all and we have an illegal market. And I think, I hope, that it will be a precursor for people understanding that decriminalizing people who use drugs is a smart strategy as well. And I'd like to see us have more conversation about that. Tell me what, what decriminalizing people means exactly. So right now, um, if you are use illegal drugs, you can be um, criminally charged. And we know that many people are um, have substance use problems or addictions to these drugs and having small amounts for their own use. And they end up in the in the, the justice system 
where um, they don't get help for their problematic substance use or their addiction. And that's not something that's going to be um, sustainable over time. And, and they get into a, a vicious cycle, essentially, of, of drug use and um, addiction. So what we would like to see is that the resources are put to administrative uh, fines if people have over a certain amount, but uh, like the Portugal model that you may have heard of, where people um, who have possession of small amounts of drugs are put through a, a process where they um, there's an assessment of their health needs and that we treat uh, addiction as it is as a health issue. Bonnie, you've been generous with your time. Thank you so much. It was a fascinating conversation, and I look forward to chatting with you uh, on your new post uh, in the days, weeks, months ahead. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Bonnie Henry, this province's new Chief Medical Health Officer. And that's it for the podcast bonus content on this week's Inside Politics. See you next week. Politics? Dull? Not in this province. Listen in as some of BC's best political minds take you Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Friday mornings at 9.08 on Radio NL, Local First.